We are slowly but surely making our way through the Gospel of John. John is the first Gospel that I read as a new believer. Actually, I was an unbeliever when I read it. I think that might be the case for many people. For various reasons, Christians often tell people they're witnessing to to read the Gospel of John. Now, a part of me understands why. Um, It's very straightforward. It has John 3.16 in it. Most people know what that's about. Uh, But the other side of me wonders, well, this this is a hard Gospel. There's a lot of hard sayings in this Gospel by John about Jesus, by others about Jesus, and by Jesus about Jesus. Hard sayings about Jesus made by Jesus, like, I and the Father are one. That's a weird thing. That's John 10, but good readers of John know that by the time you get to John 10, calling God his Father got him in trouble because You being a man, make yourself equal to God. So when Jesus calls God his father, he means he is my natural father, he is my eternal father, and I am the eternal son of the eternal father. I predate my incarnate state. You know, a lot of things are implied by Jesus using that phrase. We're in John 12, and there's some hard sayings of Jesus about Jesus, Here, last week, we considered verses 44 and 45. He who believes in me believes not in me. Remember I said last week, which is it? Huh? He who believes believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Uh, Him who sent me, the Father, he says later. And he who sees him, excuse me, and he who sees me sees him who sent me? Well, him who sent me is the Father. No one has seen God at any time, John tells us in chapter 1. These are odd statements by our Lord. Listen to the next verse. There's verse 46. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. What does that mean? Is it connected at all with what John says later in the New Testament in 1 John, I think it's 1.5. God is light. I think it is connected. And I'll show you the connection, the Lord willing, in two weeks. I want to go back, actually, in John's gospel and look look at some of these hard sayings of Jesus because I'm in the midst of a section that has hard sayings of Jesus in John 12. And I told my wife on the way here, if for no other reason than just to help my brain get reacquainted with some of the hard statements before John 12.46 to help me interpret John 12.46 properly, if for no other reason than that, I'm going to... Look at some verses we've looked at before to, to at least help the preacher go on from here. But listen to John 5. Just listen. You don't have to turn there. Listen. He answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. What does that mean? This is John five eighteen now. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because... He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. How about this one? This is John 8. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. If you know your Bible at all, you know that Abraham's way back here on the timeline. Jesus is way over here, but now Jesus, in the Gospel of John, tells us, Before Abraham was born, and then he uses this divine name, I am. That's a a hard saying of Jesus. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Listen to John 10, 30 and 31. I and the Father are one. That's another hard statement. The Jews took up stones again 
to stone him. What do you think the Jews thought? They thought he's identifying himself with on the divine side of the line. If there's a line here called creation and creatures are all down here, Jesus is speaking as a man, according to his human nature, about something above the line, about his relation to the Father. This is why I said, on the one hand, I get it. Read the Gospel of John. There's a lot of gospel in the, that gospel. On the other hand, there's a lot of hard sayings about Jesus made by Jesus himself that you can either easily get tripped up on. How about John 10, 38 and 39? The Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. Or do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? That's John 10, 36. We're going to camp there, by the way, for a while. This is red letter, Jesus speaking. This is another hard saying of Jesus about himself. Do you say of him, now look how he describes himself. Whom the Father, two things, sanctified and sent into the world. Do you say to him, you're blaspheming because, Jesus says, I said about myself, I am the Son of God. Now note two things. First, our Lord claims the Father sanctified him and sent him into the world. Okay, that's pretty clear. But second, he equates the one sanctified and sent into the world with himself, who he says he has already claimed to be the Son of God. So the Son of God was sanctified and sent into the world. What does that mean? I am come as light into the world. In your light, we see light. That's in the Psalms, by the way. Uh, God from God, light from light. Interesting how the old Christians used that language, light from light. They're talking about the Son of God being light. God is light. So we'll get to that hard stain uh, in a couple weeks. But we're looking at this hard saying. The Son was sanctified and sent into the world by the Father. Um, and what I mean by a hard saying is mysterious, Okay. And difficult to understand. Not impossible, but difficult. On a surface level, the Jews themselves thought our Lord was, you know, crazy, nuts, because they did not get some of what he meant by what he said. And they did get other things right. They knew he was claiming to be uniquely related to the Father, that they did not believe his self-attesting claims. But when those kinds of statements are analyzed, those really odd ones, difficult ones, um, when we dig deep into what does this mean, the Father sanctified the Son and sent the Son into the world, um, they teach us deep things about the identity of our Lord. And that's what I want to try to help you with this morning, digging deeper into this sanctifying and sending language. So the question I want to pursue is this, what did Jesus mean when he said, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? He's clearly asserting that the Father sanctified and sent the Son of God into the world, but just what does this mean? So, 
There are basically, from what I can tell, two, two views. Um, one view says it this way, both the sanctifying and sending refers to acts of God relating to the incarnation. Okay, so in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. So this view says this sanctifying and sending is something that happens on earth. And it started happening in the womb of of Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God, Luke 1.35. So the sanctifying and sending refers to this side of the line that I drew earlier, okay? God above the line, all creatures below the line. The Son of God assumed a creaturely nature, a created nature created by God in the womb of Mary. This sanctifying and sending refers to, to that, uh, at least initially, and then sending him once he was older and on his mission. So sanctified in this sense um, could also mean uh, moral purity, he sanctified, he made the, the human nature of the son morally pure, which is true. And then once he came out of the womb, he sent him on his mission uh, to live and die for sinners. The father, in other words, made the son's human nature morally pure by the Holy Spirit. Then the son's earthly ministry began. So this view says, sanctifying and sending refers to Christ as man or Christ according to his human nature. His human flesh was made holy by its union with the divine nature in the person of the Son. His sending refers to his mission on earth to save sinners. That's one view. If I had a button that says, eh, wrong, I would press it right now. I don't think that does justice to what's going on, not only in the passage in John 10, but reading the entire gospel, and then all the gospels, and then the New Testament, and then the Old Testament, there's more going It's it's weirder than that, okay? It's more mysterious than that, but it is a mystery that's revealed, okay? Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. So the, uh, another view says, uh, and this is, I'm borrowing some of this language from John Gill. I think he gets it right here. The sanctifying, the Father sanctified and sent the Son into the world. The sanctifying refers to a setting apart of the Son of God, or we might say the appointment of the Son of God to be the incarnate mediator between God and man before the foundation of the world, using Paul's language. Okay, so this view says, when Jesus says, the Father has sanctified and sent the Son into the world, it's referring to a divine appointment for the Son of God to be the incarnate mediator. So this isn't, this makes the incarnation not like, you know, a second thought by, by the divine uh, decree. It is within the divine decree. Before the foundation of the world, these things were transpiring in the mind of God. The sending would refer to the incarnation itself, but the sanctifying refers to the setting apart or the appointment of the Son to be sent or incarnate. So sanctifying in the sense intended here does not refer to making the human nature morally pure, but to the divine will or the divine decree. God in his eternal decree, has willed for the Son to become incarnate. The Son has become incarnate and changed the world since his incarnation. Right? We're here because 2,000 years ago, God the Son assumed human nature in Mary's womb, lived, died, rose, ascended, and he rules and reigns and he's building his church. Sending refers to the union of the divine and human natures of the Son in the incarnation itself. Now you go, well, this is hard to understand. You sing Christmas hymns every year, and they're hard to understand. 
Have you ever seen uh, somebody singing Christmas hymns in public and going, man, this, some of these hymns have deep theology. I don't even know what it means. We're going to stop singing them. No, we sing above our intellectual level sometimes. But th- these are hard words here. The Father sanctified and sent the Son. Here's what uh, the old Gill says. Sanctification here respects the eternal separation of him to his office as mediator in the council purposes and decrees of God and in the covenant of his grace being preordained thereunto before the foundation of the world, which supposes his eternal existence as a divine person. See what he's doing now? He's saying, if this sanctification is eternal decree, this supposes that the Son is the eternal Son of the eternal Father, and therefore he's on the other side of the line. He's up, he's God. Somehow, some way, the Father as Father sends the Son as Son, not to become Son, but to become incarnate. Therefore, if the Son is sent as Son, he predates his incarnation as Son. That's what Gil's getting at there. Gill then says that sending refers to the actual incarnation in human nature to obtain eternal redemption and salvation for his people. Why did the Son of God become one of us? To obtain eternal redemption and salvation for his people, to save them from sin, Satan, the world, law, hell, and death, which none but God could do. Why must the mediator be this two-natured mediator, both God and man? Because there are some things he has to do that only God can do, like destroy the works of the devil. So I think this second option is the the view that's the correct one. Um, In John 10, the context by the way, is not a battle over the humanity of Christ, right? Remember reading God's God's gospel? John's gospel, reading John's gospel, the battle is over not the humanity of Christ, but the divinity of Christ, right? He doesn't get in trouble saying, I'm a man, He gets in trouble saying, I'm the son of God. Okay? My father is working until now, divine providence, and I myself am working. Oops. So as long as the father has been operating divine power in what we call divine providence, the son has been operating the same divine power for the same duration. Is that what Jesus was getting at? It's exactly what he was getting at. So he must predate his incarnation. The issue in John 10 and John 8 and John 9 and John 11 and John, and I think almost every chapter of the Gospel of John is not the humanity of Christ. It's the divinity of Christ, isn't it? Yes, it is. Thank you. Our Lord's claim to be God is the very issue at stake as well in John 10. I and the Father are one the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Remember that in John 10, 30 and 31. So verse 36 is the one where he uses the language of the Father sanctifying and sending the Son. We could put it this way. Though it is true that a very mysterious thing happened to the human nature of our Lord while in the womb of Mary, it was united to the person of the Son at its generation. That's... Christmas, you know, that's mysterious, but it's revealed. It is also true that our Lord's claim to be man is not the issue that got him in trouble with the Jewish leaders and not the issue on the table in the discussion he was having with them in John 10. His true manhood is not at stake. His 
true godhood is the issue. So whatever father sending, uh, excuse me, sanctifying and sending means, it, it, well, it means something to reveal his divinity. It makes better sense to hold this view that the sanctifying has something to do with the decree of God before the foundation of the world and the sending has something to do with the union unite with the person of the son uniting uh the two natures uh in him at the incarnation itself i think it makes more sense here's what i mean how could the human nature of our lord be sent from heaven so i got one let me ask the question how could our lord's human nature be sent from heaven. You go, well, no, it was generated in the womb. You've already read Luke 135. So whatever the sending is, it can't be Jesus, before his incarnation, had a physical human body, human nature, body and soul, in heaven. That's what was sent, okay? It's actually weirder than that. That is weird, okay? But it's wrong. There was no pre-incarnate body of the the second person. He didn't bring a body with him. He assumed one in the womb. So what I'm going to try to say here is that, as weird as it sounds, this sending must refer to the Son of God according to his divine nature, which is weird too. The divine nature of the Son was sent from heaven to earth. There's local motion in the divine nature. Is that a song? <laughs> An old song, right? It is. Uh, the Son of God goes from and to, and that's the incarnation, according to his divine nature. Now, before you think I'm off my rocker, which I am, but not on this issue, listen to these famous traditional lyrics, okay? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Right? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. How can the Lord come if he's God since God is omnipresent? You ever thought of that? You have, because I've taught you to think that way. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord, God of God, light of light. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Did you get that? Whatever this abhorring not is, he existed. If he abhorred not the virgin's womb, he must in some, in the form of God, Philippians chapter 2, pre-existed assuming the human nature in the womb. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. That's O come, all ye faithful. It's the line that most people aren't aware of. It's in our hymnal, by the way. Or consider these words of Holy Scripture. In the beginning was the Word. Okay, good readers know the Word is the Son. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's a hard statement. He was in the beginning with God. There's some sort of relational terminology. There's God, and there's the Word, and they're with each other. All things, well, watch this one. All things came into being by him, the word who was with God and was God. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then we read, and the word became flesh. Remember I said, on the one hand, I get it. Read the gospel of John if you're exploring Christianity. On the other hand, it's got some odd statements in it. Here we have, with God, and yet God is this word who's later identified as the one who became flesh, Jesus, and yet he's 
creature. He became flesh. But he's also creator. I've said this before. You have to have in your thinking, you have to have a place for the Son of God to be the creator of his own flesh. There's another weird one, right? The word is God prior to the incarnation. The word remains God at the incarnation. The incarnation is the coming of the word to take upon himself flesh. But again, if the word of God If the word is God before the incarnation, at the point of the incarnation, and during our Lord's ministry and even now, how can he come to be incarnate since he's omnipresent? What does it mean to become flesh, to be sent into the world, to be incarnate, given the omnipresence of the word prior to the world and any flesh coming into being? Now... That's a weird, that's a conundrum, huh? Like, okay, there's coming language, there's sent language all over the Gospel of John. How do we parse all that with the first chapter that says pretty clearly the word is above the line? He's above, he's not a creature. Somehow, some way, he was with God in terms of how you define that relationship and all that it takes, you know, the whole of Scripture to fill in the gaps and all that stuff. But it's very clear that he was with God and was God and the creator of all things. And then he assumes flesh. He's sent. He's all the divine attributes that are true of the Father are also true of the Son, And one of those is omnipresence. I have a book on my shelf. It's probably on my floor. There's no more shelf space. Piles of books all over. There's one of them called The Omnipresence of Jesus, of the incarnate Son of God. So how do you figure all that stuff out? We can understand coming to some place, the world, or even the womb of Mary, uh, in at least two senses. First, I'm quoting somebody here. Someone comes where he absolutely had not been before. The father sent the son. He, He came to a place that he had absolutely not had any sense of presence in that place. So you can understand it that way. Someone comes where he absolutely had not been before. Uh, Somebody came to church for the first time. Never been to our church services. Uh, Absolutely had not been here before, but now they came. Or you could understand it this way. Someone begins to be in a new way where he was before. Let me say that again. Someone begins to be in a new way where he was before. It was in this way that the Son of God came into the world and yet was in the world. For he was there indeed by his essence, power, and presence, but he came by assuming flesh. Let me say it again. Someone begins to be in a new way where he was before. He was there invisibly, and he came in order to be visible. Does anybody know who, want to know who I was just quoting? Thomas Aquinas, that late medieval Roman Catholic. He's right, though. He gets it. By the way, all the good stuff that's in Aquinas, he's just saying what Augustine and Cyril said many hundreds of years before him. So we could put it this way. We could say he was manifested in a new way via his flesh. That's why we say he, the Son of God, assumed human nature, took to himself something he had not until that time. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells 
in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. The word was not changed because he's God. The flesh came into being and was united to the person we call the Lord, the Son of God. So the sending then that we're wrestling with refers to the mysterious union of the divine and human natures in the Son. The sanctification of the Son, John 10.36, refers to something prior to the incarnation, prior to the generation of the human nature of the Son in Mary's womb. So sending can't refer to the human nature. But this sounds weird. How is the divine nature sent? Thank you. You got it. It's like, what a divine nature. How is the divine nature sent if it's not referring to the human nature? Here's one of those ancient African theologians that has become a friend of mine. He says this, When anything is said about God in a human fashion, we must understand it in a way fitting for God. And he goes on and gives several examples. Here's one. Psalm 80, 1 and 2. Thou who dost lead Joseph like a flock, thou who art enthroned Above the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy power. And come to save us. Like, stir up thy power? That sounds weird, huh? It's like, was this God a witch or something? This is like a potion? You throw in a little divine ingredients and power is... Mixed up in a soup bowl, or what? what's going on here? Cyril says, how can an incorporeal being, that is God, who is invisible, sit in thrones? See what he's getting at? He said, the scripture uses creaturely language to depict something true about God, but we need to make sure we don't let it stay in the realm of the creature. He says, where is the God of all when David urges him to come to us. God says through the prophet, do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Um, Rend the heavens and come down. You ever read that? It's in Isaiah. It's like, you, you weren't, like you're not here? Over here it says, do I not fill heaven and earth? Which sounds like a rhetorical question, assuming a yes answer, you do fill heaven and earth. You are. Your being is replete throughout creation. I think that's the technical word. If it's not, strike it. Here's what he's getting at. This language of scent, how else are we going to say it like that? Because we already talk like that from the Old Testament. Rend the heavens and come down. Do you mean that Divine nature is, you want it to be relocated from one place to another? God flies from heaven, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to do that, right? And rightly so, because you've read enough of the Old Testament, by the time you get to the New Testament, you realize divinity is omnipresent. So whatever sending is, we can't think of it like we think about us. How then could he who fills all things come to us? It is also written, this is Cyril again, written that certain people built a tower reaching to the heavens, and the Lord went down to see the city and the tower. There's language again. Wait a minute. God's going from a place to another place to see something he hadn't seen before? He's kind of like me, isn't he? Just on a higher scale, maybe. Which, by the way, that's what some cults teach. God is just the creature writ large. That sounds pretty cool, isn't it? Somebody else wrote it. The creature writ large, that's what God is. We're down here on the scale of being, and he's just higher up on the ladder, on the scale. But we're both creatures. You see how you could make God into a creature if you read these literally, right? God went down to see something 
So he wasn't there, number one. Number two, he didn't know everything because he had to go down there to see it. Therefore, he left one place, went to another, gained information. He's just like me, discursive reasoning. I see a thing. I surmise what it is. I draw conclusions. God learns. I mean, if you read them literally... Uh, by the way, don't read them literally. We're using Cyril to help us not do that. He's going to say, you got to scrub the language. I'm borrowing an analogy from somebody else. Scrub the language of its creatureliness and find out what the language is signifying to be true in God. And when you do that with a sanctifying and sending, you say sanctifying must refer to before the foundation of the world, the mystery of God's decree that the Son would be incarnate in, in time. And sending, as weird as it sounds, must refer to the Son assuming a form of presence he did not have before the incarnation. He had the form of God presence, and he never ceased that form of presence but he began to be present where he was already present in a new way. This is, this is like basic Christian doctrine. This is the assumption of flesh by the Son of God. Come, let us go down and confuse their tongues there. Genesis 11. Cyril says, from where did the Lord go down? How did the Holy Trinity urge itself to descend? Therefore, our words signify matters beyond us when they are spoken of God. Thank you, Brother Cyril of Alexandria. I think this must be taken into mind when we try to dissect the meaning of the Son being sent. Here's one last word from, uh, of advice from Cyril. So what, if human, so what if human language has no words capable of explaining the divine glory? Let me read that again. So what if human language has no words capable of explaining the divine glory? The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Uh, have you ever heard of this? The divine glory is... It's ineffable. That means you can't speak about it and, exa and exhaust its meaning. The words don't do it justice. You know, if, if words could do justice to the divine glory, the divine being, then we could say that we can comprehend the divine being because our words take all there is in, uh, of God uh, uh, and our words encapsulate God into it. It's like, no, I think there's something more mysterious about God than that. So what if human language has no words capable of explaining the divine glory? I think he's right. Placing the sanctifying of the Son by the Father before the incarnation in the decree of God strengthens our Lord's claim of deity. It argues his existence as son of the father before his incarnate state. If the father sanctified the son before the incarnation, then the son was son of the father and the father was father of the son before the incarnation. John beats that drum over and over and over again. And if the father is eternal God as father, he must have an eternal son to be the eternal father. This is the Trinity, and you see how you can get the Trinity from some of these obscure verses in John's Gospel. There never was a time when the Father was not Father of the Son, so the Son is eternal God as well. If there was never a time, and never is and will be a time when the Son is not Son of the Father, then the Son didn't become Son at any either point in time or in eternity. 
We can say he's eternally begotten because that's in the, in the Bible, whatever that means, right? But it can't mean, therefore, he had no being and then he came into being. Well, we can say that about his human nature, but we, we dare not say that about his divine nature if he's really God. Okay, that's it. I got it off my chest. Now, contemplation. I want to contemplate briefly some texts that may help get a firmer grip on what I've tried to say. Here's another weird one. Luke 22, 29 says this. Uh, translations are slightly different, different here. Let me read two translations for you. This is uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 29. And I probably the English translations were twisted in the wrong direction, unfortunately, by early, really early English translations from the 16th century. But here's Luke 22, 29. These are the words of our Lord to his disciples. Now watch what he says here. And I, this is New King James. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Here's the New American Standard. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you. And there's probably different translations of that verb there. The word translated in New American Standard, granted, comes from a very interesting Greek word. I usually don't say Greek words very often, but listen to this word, diatheke, just listen to it, and then listen to this, diatithemi, diatheke, diatithemi, kind of related, right? They are. The diatheke is the word for covenant, but this verb translated granted, and then over here in the New King James, bestowed, actually comes, is related to the word for covenant. So we could read this, just as my father has covenanted me a kingdom. Interestingly enough, uh, if we want to be literal, we could do that. The word translated granted in Luke twenty two twenty nine has a covenantal connotation or meaning and refers to something between the father and the son. This is what many refer to as the covenant of redemption. Somehow, someway, there's this purpose of God before the incarnation of the Son of God that brings forth the incarnation of the Son of God and his eternal kingdom and people, and it's all a package deal purposed by God before the foundation of the world. Listen to this. This is our confession of faith. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. That's a pretty good statement. I wish I would have said that. Well, um, I did say it, but I'm quoting ancient words for us from the 17th century, where did they get those words? Well, you say the Baptists got it from the, the independent Congregationalists, and the Congregationalists got it from the Presbyterians. Okay, where'd the Presbyterians get them? Well, they got them from the Anglicans. Where'd the Anglicans get them? Well, they, got, they got them from the late medieval, from the Reformers, and the Reformers got them from the late medieval guys. And, and you go all the way back and you say, well, they got them from the, they got these words, Okay, the concepts embodied by these terms are embedded in the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts of the Old and New Testament. That's where they got it from. I think if that's what you're thinking, you're right. If you're not, think right. There's this kingdom covenanted to the Son to be incarnate that includes his lordship over this people given him, and it includes some sort of eschatological feast and with reference to the apostles, judgment as well. That's like weird. But Jesus 
just assumes this, what we call covenant of redemption in this language. Now, I think an important question to ask at this point is this. When did all this take place? When did the father grant or covenant with the son to give him a kingdom? Now, many texts seem clearly to indicate that this was a pre-creation, pre-time, pre-temporal covenant. By the way, is time eternal? If it is, then it's God. Time is not. The world was created with time. Okay? There's no point in time that God created the world. Because that would mean time predates the creation. Anyway, that's a freebie. That's free right there. You didn't come here for that, but I just gave it to you. But the question is, this granting, this covenanting of a kingdom, which includes a people to be king over, from the Father to the Son, when did this take place? Many texts seem to indicate that it was pre-creation, pre-time, pre-space. That's weird. A pre-temporal covenant. For example, listen to Titus 1-2. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised, literally, before times eternal. That is an interesting verse, isn't it? Sometimes you read over stuff like that. That's Titus 1-2. Listen to it again. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, or before times eternal. So, decree is the technical word we often use as Christians, includes this purpose uh, to convey, to bestow a quality of life on people that's actually better than their created state and certainly better than their fallen state, It's a promise within God that terminates on the creature's well-being. And it predates creation. This, This verse says that God promised eternal life long ages ago. Now, here's an interesting question. To whom was this promise made? He promised before times eternal. The hope of eternal life. To whom was this promise made? Listen to John Owen. He's not a northern African. And he's not from the 5th century like the other brothers I was reading. He's a 17th century British Puritan. He says, eternal life is said to be promised of God before the world began. Titus 1-2. That is, you know what he's going to say. To the Son of God for us on his undertaking on our behalf. Thank you, Johnny. So the Son of God takes on our nature to obtain eternal life for us according to this covenant of redemption. The Son or Word of God remains God, yet becomes flesh. Honey, did you steal one of my pages? The flesh of the Son of God becomes the means through which he is present with us in a new way. This is why we sing Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. First Timothy, <coughs> Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, 
Great is the, mis- <coughs> the mystery of godliness. Excuse me. <clears throat> God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. There's more mystery there. God was manifested in the flesh, okay, incarnation, but God was received up in glory? Wait a minute, I thought you were saying if he's God, then he's omnipresent. How can he be received up into glory? The Son of God incarnate, who is God the Son, can be received up in glory according to his human nature, the only nature that was not in glory before being in glory, right? Two natures, one person. Great is the mystery of godliness. Now, all the hard sayings of Jesus are going to be easy to interpret now that we've gone through that exercise. I am come as a light into the world. That's the one we're going to deal with in a couple weeks, the Lord willing. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your gracious giving of your word to us. Um, some parts of it are very clear, very easy to understand. And then there's these wonderful, mysterious statements. Uh, like, I have come down from heaven. I've been sent from my Father. My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. The Father has life in himself and is given to the Son to have life in himself. Before Abraham was was born, I am. I and the Father are one. The Father sanctified and sent the Son into the world. The Father is in me and I in the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. These and many more statements are revealed to us in the written word of God. And they depict something of the unique person of the Son incarnate. That he was flesh, he became flesh. And yet that was his new mode or new manner of presence in a place he already was. So uh, we thank you for these hard truths. We pray that light from heaven would be shine on the word and in our hearts to give us understanding and now to sing in response to what we've heard. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.